Who else can make every king bow down? Who else can whisper and darkness tremble? Who invites us to call him Father? Only a holy God. Will you please take your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. We are working our way through God's revelation of the Exodus. And we've completed chapters 1 and 2 and we start today in chapter 3. So as you remain standing, I would invite you to watch and look as I read from Exodus chapter 3 starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord reveals, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why, the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sand or take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I'll send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, I'll go with you, and this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You can be seated. Children can be dismissed to children's church. I would comment that this is a pivotal section in the story of Exodus. This is the first revelation that God miraculously reveals himself in the book of Exodus. Now, we've seen extraordinary providence already. 
when Moses is saved out of the Nile River in the basket. That's extraordinary providence of God. Certainly God intervening and providing. But this is the first miracle. Those things which contradict natural law and expectation. It's a pivotal section as God says to Moses, not only am I going to deliver the people, but I'm going to do it through you. This account is extremely relevant for us today because we see a man named Moses asking a question that we probably already do, but should ask, who am I? Really imperative to the gospel is answering that question correctly. Who am I? In many ways, this is a question for us. Now, chapter 3 and 4, just to give us some context, we want to preach the scripture, and so we want to understand the scripture so that we can apply the scripture. These two chapters, 3 and 4, are uh, what's called a theophany narrative. You don't have to know what the word theophany means already. I'm about to explain it. A theophany is when our God reveals himself visibly. You could discuss with, I think, some enjoyment, which the staff pastors did on Tuesday at our staff meeting, is this theophany the first person or the second person of the Trinity? It was an enjoyable conversation but one without dogmatic conclusion. We know that God appeared to Moses in fire, inside a bush that wasn't being burned up. A theophany, the revelation, the visible revelation of God, follows a certain pattern every time it happens in the Old Testament. There are ten points to a theophany revelation or narrative. I don't have time to walk you through all 10, but I would just say that one of the really significant points in all of these narratives is when God gives the authoritative command and the human recipient responds. Okay. So in this narrative, chapter three and four of this theophany, God visibly and audibly speaking five times, God repeats the authoritative command. Four times Moses raises concern or objection to the command. You're probably familiar with Moses' reservations about being used by God this way. And so in the narrative, God says, you go to Pharaoh and you lead my people to the place I've prepared for them. And Moses says things like, in our text, who am I? Who am I? And he raises that objection four times in all. Look with me at verses 10 through 12 again. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. This this is where we're going. So as we study some of the context and the scenery, this is where we're going. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, the Lord says in chapter 3, verse 10. 
that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And then God says, I will be with you. I will prove to you that I have done the thing I commanded to be done when you get back to this mountain and you and all the people worship me here. Go do this thing. I'll be with you. Now, we're going to talk about what God is saying to Moses, but doesn't it sound like, okay, I'm going to go stand before the most powerful magistrate on the planet, and you're going to be in the room, in spirit. But there's more that God's promising Moses there, and we're going to talk about it later. So let me break this section of narrative into two parts. We have Moses, a wanderer in the wilderness. And we're going to take five things there to answer the question Moses asks, who am I? Okay, a wanderer in the wilderness. And then we'll see second, that Moses is a doubter about God's spoken word. Moses, a wanderer in the wilderness. Let's look at five things we learn and help us answer the question, who am I? The main purpose of this first verse Coming in the third person, Moses writing about himself is to provide us a little explanation of how Moses wound up where he is. And this place where God would first reveal himself to Moses. Would you just keep in mind for just a second that Moses doesn't have all the things we have that help us understand God? I'm going to refer as we go on to Moses having what we call oral traditions. God reveals himself to Moses as the God of his father. So Moses' dad is a God-fearing man who would have passed on oral traditions about the God of creation. But Moses doesn't have the scriptures. He doesn't have churches all over town that he can walk into and ask questions about this God. He doesn't have Christian co-workers. God reveals himself to Moses in this place. Moses is going to conclude with the question, who am I? And we see five things at least in this section. Let's look at the first one. First, who is Moses? Well, he's maybe a Midianite, maybe a Hebrew. What he isn't is an Egyptian. (laughs) Because what's he doing? He's tending to a flock. And there is no way that a prominent Egyptian would have had anything to do with that task. Now, not only is Moses tending to a menial task of shepherding, but Moses is shepherding someone else's flock, his father-in-law, Jethro. So he's really in a humble state that no Egyptian would ever put himself in. So we could say he seems to be operating like... A Midianite, like his father-in-law, or a Hebrew, but not an Egyptian. Secondly, where is Moses when this happens? I speculate that Moses has intentionally wandered 
about one week's journey from Midian to go to what's called the backside of the wilderness. He is on the bank of the eastern portion of the Red Sea. I speculate that he's there because it's filling his heart. It's filling his mind. His people are in bondage in Egypt. And he's wandered all the way to Mount Horeb. He's pastoring this flock weeks away from home. Probably not foolishly. In that area, there are some really fertile slopes where they would have found feed. But it's probably not the only place in the Middle East to find pasture. Moses is probably, underlined probably, mindful of the people as he leads this flock through the wilderness. Now, in verse 2 and 3, we are going to see a miracle. This is extraordinary because nothing to this point has been miraculous. Now, you understand that there are things that happen that are amazing. And that's shocking to us when it happens. But there are things that happen that are shocking because they don't usually happen that way. But natural law could explain them. This one can't be explained by natural law. Therefore, it falls in the category of a miracle. This is the first time we are going to see in this part of the Pentateuch a miracle. In this miracle, the Bible tells us that the angel of the Lord appears to Moses. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. The angel of the Lord appears to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Moses looks. Behold, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. Moses said, I'm going to go over and look at this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. Moses is wandering in a place that we are probably unfamiliar with. Like seeing spontaneous combustion of a bush wasn't all that surprising. Like, yeah, it's hot and there's no water and stuff burns. But wait, that one is burning, but not burned So Moses becomes curious and walks over to this one. And there he has this dialogue with the angel of the Lord. I mentioned before, uh, there's a part of me that really wants to know, so is this a Christophany, is this a theophany? And I want to have a hard case for which it is. And I can't do that. But there are some things I think are important to know. The first one is, the Bible says this is the angel of the Lord. Now, this is a a part of uh, um, uh, Hebrew speech where the word Yahweh and the word angel have to be the same part of speech. They have to be definite, okay? They, They would have to be either both definite or both indefinite. Now, is Yahweh definite? If I say to you, Yahweh... Do you think, well, which Yahweh are you referring to? No, no one thinks which Yahweh are you referring to. It's definite. Therefore, angel also has to be definite. They have to match. That's important because this is not just one of the created messengers that we know as angels, beings God created. This is the one angel of Yahweh. 
the one and only. And this angel appears to him and speaks. The angel of the Lord. Moses has already written twice about the angel of the Lord. Coincidentally, not miraculously, the first time is in Genesis 16. Do you know who the angel of the Lord appears to in Genesis 16? Hagar. Appears to Hagar in Genesis chapter 16. The angel of the Lord appears to her to assure her that he would not leave her alone. In Genesis chapter 22, the angel of the Lord appears to Abraham and to Isaac in their exile toward Mount Moriah. This is not any angel, but the angel of the Lord. The context here makes it clear that this angel is able to do God things. This angel would bring Israel to the promised land. This angel had the power to forgive or not forgive. This angel spoke speaking and commands that people must obey. This angel was a self-existent one. This angel was a judge, a destroyer of Israel's enemy. All attributes, clearly God attributes. Now, historically, people we call church fathers, so, so the people who have ministered in church since Christ, historically, church fathers have concluded that this is a Christophany. This is a visible appearing of the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. It's plausible, and I'm content with it being either. But the angel of the Lord, our God, appears to Moses. And we see the third thing about Moses. He is responsive. He says, here I am. Like Hagar had said in Genesis 16. Like Abraham had said in Genesis 22. This, the next thing we see is that Moses is unholy. Moses is unholy. The voice comes out of the middle of the bush, the fire, and says, Moses, Moses, here I am. Stop where you are. Don't come any closer. Take your shoes off. You're already so close that the symbol of uncleanness, your shoes, have to be gone. Now, we don't know when shoes became a symbol of uncleanness. And they're not really a symbol of uncleanness in our culture. Not really. Although still, some of you would say, you know, when I go into my house, I ask people to take their shoes off. Some people do. We're not sure when the footwear became the symbol of uncleanness. However, we do know that in this time, servants didn't wear shoes at all. So maybe it's not so much the object was symbolizing filth as Moses standing before the angel of the Lord as a servant. Take your shoes off. Our roles here are one where I am the Lord and you are the servant. I want you to notice two important things here for us. So I want to say an applicational word before I move on. Two important things for us. 
This is important because we are one thing above all other things. All of us are. One thing above all other things. We are all worshipers above everything else. Created that way in the garden. God yearning jealously for our worship. According to John 4, God seeking one thing, worshipers. Therefore, what God says to Moses is really important as it relates to worship. First, Moses cannot approach God without knowing God. Um, we have an expression here at church kind of fits into one of our core values. It says we value transformation more than information, which is true. It's true. We don't want a, a group of brothers and sisters who are dead in uh, information. We want transformation. That's what we anticipate the gospel doing. However, that could be misleading because it could suggest that we just want people to change the way they live, but not be exposed to the truth about who God is. And, and changing the way you live without being exposed to the truth about who God is, is uh, hypocrisy. It's contrary to the gospel. Moses needed to know who God was. There was something Moses needed to know. Sometimes Christians are criticized for being too academic and not compassionate enough. You're not really relevant. You're not really impacting anything. You're just learning stuff. The first thing God would have Moses do before going and accomplishing the task of the Exodus is say, stop, you need to know who's talking to you. And so as worshipers, the first thing we have to do is say, who is God? The second thing is that Moses couldn't approach God until God gave him the instructions to do it. So Moses doesn't get to come up and say, oh, oh you're the God of my father and Abraham and Isaac and Jake. That's great. Now here's what I'm going to do next. <laughs> he doesn't do that. God says, take your shoes off. There's this dynamic between us where you are unclean and I am totally holy, unlike anything else, which is the definition of holiness. I am completely extraordinary. Nothing is like me. Incomparable. When it comes to our worship, we don't get to define the terms. That's the, that's the nature of the conversation with the woman at the well. She was frustrated because the culture was setting the terms of worship and she kind of throws her hands up and goes, I don't even know, whatever. You know, my people say I got to go to Mount Ebal or Mount Gerizim and that, that's where worship's really better. And your people say you got to go to Mount Jerusalem and whatever. And Jesus responds to that by saying, stop expressing cultural norms of worship and let me tell you the truth about worship. God is seeking worshipers and all worshipers must worship according to spirit and truth. And yet, we are all a little guilty of trying to define extra-biblical worship. 
I was telling my wife, one of the things we did during sabbatical is we went and spent time with some friends and some people that we know. And, and one of the things that we witnessed was people determining which songs they would sing and which ones they wouldn't sing based on how they felt about that song. I've heard unsaved people say things like, I don't don't have to go into church. I take nature hikes, and I worship God that way. We don't get to define the worship of God. You know the expression, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades? It kind of makes sense, right? Well, as long as you're close, these will both work. That's not the way it is with worship, friends. We don't get to do reader response. Like, oh, this is how I feel worship. I listened to a song this morning. Uh, It was new to me, so I went to YouTube to listen to it. It was a very nice and appropriate song. I really enjoyed hearing it. It was very worshipful. But then I happened to notice on the bottom of my screen in my office, there was a comment, and there was an individual who had commented, I am a non-believer, but I have never felt closer to God than I did when I listened to this song, and now I am a believer. And admittedly, I scratched my head. I thought, that's a peculiar expression of the gospel or a testimony. But I think we, I think we might, I don't know her at all. I don't know her, what, what happened after that. But I think that we do live in a culture where we think that we are the determiners of what is worship. And this is just a great lesson for us. Know God and then hear his commandments about worship. Worship is very, very central to who we are. The next thing we see then in that is that Moses was reverent. He does take off his shoes and he hides his face. God says, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Moses hides his face. Now, just, I wrote this sentence. Isn't it interesting that within the span of a year, Moses is going to be back on this mountain range and he's going to say, show me. The Moses who right now is putting his arms over his face like, oh no, I am surely going to die if I see him, is going to be back and say, I think you're, you're going to kill all of us out here in the wilderness. Prove it by showing yourself to me. And we'll learn that God is going to reveal uh, the presence of where his glory had just vacated to Moses, and it's going to burn him at least mildly. So it's interesting to me here that that's what he asked for. Who is Moses? I mean, there's an identity crisis. There's a, there's a conscious that he's, he's convicted about how his people are doing. He's curious. He's unholy. He's reverent. Who am I? Who are we? And it's so important to the gospel. Because, friend, you can hear that Jesus, the incarnate deity, took on flesh and 
went to the cross, lived sinlessly, died substitutionally, and rose victoriously. You can hear all those things, nod your head and go, yes and amen. All of that, I affirm it. And assume for a moment that you are not a ruined sinner and miss the gospel. I am very concerned about how people like us answer the question, who am I? The Bible answers the question. The Bible says the heart of man is desperately evil. The lips of man are unclean. His feet are swift to do harm. He is eager to exchange the truth about the God for a lie so that he can worship created things rather than creator. We call this man's depravity. Now, depravity doesn't mean man's lawlessness. See, people want to discredit depravity because they say, oh, if that were true, people would only do evil. Everyone would murder everybody and the human race would cease to exist. That's nonsense. I'm sure you can find that argument on YouTube. Romans chapter 2 explains the truth that YouTube might miss. Even unsaved people do law-keeping because the fingerprint of the law-giver is on their heart and their conscience bears witness. I, I shouldn't murder my enemy. Really, tell me why. It feels icky. Yeah, unsaved person. The law of God bears witness on your conscience that it most definitely is icky to murder your enemy. So man is not totally lawless. That's a, that's a different argument and untrue. But man is depraved. Who am I? Moses had grown up hearing these oral traditions about God. He had heard the promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For Moses, the problem wasn't going to be, is God able? The problem was, is God able through me? That was Moses' problem. I don't think I see Moses doubting the I am. Like, God, you go to Egypt to the big house and bring the people here. I'll be here waiting. I don't think Moses has a problem with that at all. It's when God says, you go as one of my prophets to the king and tell him to let his free labor force go. Now I have a problem. The question, who are we? I just want to say quickly, really quickly, unsaved person, who are you? If God's saving you from the bondage of sin requires you to do some moral perfections, then you are going to stay in the slavery of sin. You're not going to clean yourself up if that's what it takes to get out of Egypt. question applies to the church too. Go into all the world and make disciples 
everywhere there are people groups. Okay, but who am I? I mean, I don't have the money to get there. I can't be in two places at once, and I've got a lot of responsibilities here. Even when I get there, I'm not good at a lot of stuff. There's probably a lot of people that would be way better at this than me. And the truth is, there's not. There's no one that's good enough for it. Because the weight of the issue isn't who am I, but it's next week, who is he? Let's move into our second point. Moses is doubtful of God's delivered word. Moses had heard the oral tradition, but here is God for the first time saying, I am Yahweh, I am the God of creation, and he gives Moses instruction. Now when he does, there are two really important struggles that Moses is going to feel and if we, if we think about it in a moment, we feel them too. The first one is this. Moses hears this instruction from God. And the first struggle is, can I trust a God who says the suffering can end finally? If he could do it now, why has it gone on so long? I've heard the cries of my people. I have seen the burden of their taskmasters. I know their afflictions, he says to Moses. And Moses goes, did you just become aware of their afflictions? Because it's been a long time. If you can do this, why wait so long? Now, <clears throat> There are, in Scripture, and especially in this story, principled answers to that question. How can God be in control and there be evil in the world? In the Bible, there are principled answers to that question. And Lord willing, God reassures us of those answers as we go through Exodus. The second doubt that must have impressed Moses is, I tried to save a couple Hebrew people and failed. I just tried to intervene one day and the next day they accused me of being a murderer who had no right to lead them anywhere. These two doubts must have weighed on Moses right away as he starts getting this commission. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, we see God communicate his concern for the people in these four terms. I've seen their affliction, heard their cry, I know about their taskmasters, and I am aware of their suffering. He says, I have surely seen, I have heard, I know. When he says, I have indeed seen, this is a Hebrew expression that means I have watched it intently. I have paid close attention to it. God wasn't off doing something different and kind of glancing over every once in a while and going, oh, it's a hard day for them. Okay, but I've got some stuff to do. He saw it, watched it intently. He was well acquainted with their grieving. Verse 8, God says, therefore, here is my rescue plan. I've come down to bring them to a place that is good for them. Verse 9, he says again, because of their plight. But 
verse 10 is where the proverbial rubber meets the road. Verse 10, Moses was not ready for this. Come, God says. They have everything in common to this point. I think Moses' heart aches for the condition of the people. God just said he sympathizes with the needs of the people. And Moses is like, a powerful God who cares about stuff I care about. That's reassuring. Here's the plan. You go tell Pharaoh to let them leave. And Moses now all of a sudden thinks, now we don't have anything in common. And then Moses expresses a humble concern. I'll send you to Pharaoh. And Moses says in verses 11 and 12, Who am I? This is the first of the four concerns that Moses raises. Who am I? I can't. It's a humble concern. David, David used this term twice. David uh, used it when God was blessing him and placing him in a position that he didn't think he deserved. Or telling him that one of his descendants was going to sit on the throne and he's celebrating in Samuel. Who am I that you would do such amazing blessings to me? So it's not necessarily an objection yet. It's kind of a humble concern. But God says two things. He says, first, I will be with you. Now remember the room? Moses is going to get there and say to the most powerful king, you got to let him go. And God says, I'll be there. However, that's what we read in English. What Moses heard in this reassurance was that God would provide Moses with a special help that would cause people to recognize that Moses was authoritative and should be given an audience, should be heeded. So, I'll be with you means basically, when people listen to you make this argument, they are going to rightly perceive that you're speaking on my behalf, God's behalf. The second thing he says is, this commission I've given you will be accomplished. You're going to get back to this point. And you're going to remember that I sent you to do this and I promised to be with you because you and all the people are going to right here worship me. It's significant. Not only does it mean that the people are going to be out of Egypt, in the wilderness, on their way to the land of promise, but it means that those people that are in Egypt are now going to be worshiping God. As I read this, and I heard these two promises, I'll be with you, and you will surely see the thing I've commissioned you to do accomplished. Let me just give you like three seconds. God, in a theophany, says out of a burning bush to Moses, I have a commission for you. 
Go do it. I'm with you. And it will surely be done. You get three seconds to figure out where my mind went when I read that. Matthew chapter 18. The commission of Jesus Christ at his ascension when he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make them disciples. Baptize them. Teach them everything. And I am with you to the end of the age. What's the bookend to that? The front end. Everything is under my foot. All authority has been given to me. Go do this. I'm with you. We are also promised that there will be a measured fulfillment. Revelation 5 and 6. Go to every nation and make disciples from every people group. And it will be accomplished. Revelation 5 and 6. A myriad of souls from every nation gather at the throne and praise God. Paul says that the commission that Jesus gave us was going to be realized. And Paul says, isn't that going to bring us great joy? When the thing he told us to go and do, we do. We see it completed by his power and we celebrate. He says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul says, what is our hope, our joy, our crown for boasting before the Lord? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. Seeing that God did what he told us he would do is great joy. Church. Who are we? So, we got a chance to hear from Jessica and the, the Hagar house. And those statistics are, they're, they're, they're frightening, right? They're alarming. Bridge Street Mission, the Hope Pregnancy Center, Gospel TLC, Emmanuel, Global Mission. A mission's vision to reach people who live inside countries where Christians aren't allowed. Who are we? But that's the wrong question, right? Moses misses the point. And it won't be till next week where we will see the point. Because Moses says, who am I? And God saves Moses from answering. He doesn't tell him. You know, you're a creature of the dirt, and you're headed back to the dirt. But in the meantime, he doesn't answer that question, who am I? He says, I am. So church, who are we? Well, according to 1 Timothy 3.14, we are the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. Our God is a holy God. And it's in light of that that we can answer the question in a non-self-deprecating way, who am I? I am the child of the king. I am 
being carried by his almighty hand. I am being guarded in the shadow of his wing. I am being preserved in the palm of his hand. I am kept in his love without end. Because he is the great I am. Let's pray. Lord Father, we are thankful for this morning. We get to look at a character like your servant Moses. So relatable. Struggling, wrestling with fear and doubt. Getting a commission from you and thinking that he's unworthy. But all of it is in the context of you revealing yourself as the great I am. So Lord, as we go from here now, and as we prayerfully consider the commission Christ gave us, I pray that we would be sealed with the promise that you are with us always to the end of the age. And that our joy would be fixed on the reality that the fruit of gospel labor will be fulfilled and will be realized. Nations, tribes and tongues, various languages all surrounding your throne. Because your servants have been carried about in the task by our great I Am. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with me and let's sing together.